Hi, I am Nicole. And I'm Caitlin. And I'm Ryan, Caitlin's brother. <laughs> we uh, suckered him in. <laughs> Ryan's been here before, so. It's been a while. Yes. Do you still say the title it at the has... beginning? We do, right. yeah. And this, this is... is That's, That's Not, not How Science, science works. works. Made a piece of media, really you tried, but when I saw the science in it, little part of me died. If you had only done your research on... Tar pits. Then maybe us STEM lovers wouldn't have to cry inside. That's not how science works. Oh, that's not how science works. I don't know who wrote this nonsense, but it wasn't researched. If I think too much about it, it makes my head hurt. That's not how science works. That's not how science works. That's not how science works. You may or may not have surmised, I mean, by this point you've seen the title of this episode, that we have finally decided to go back to watching Lost in Space. Much to uh, Nicole's dismay. <laughs> We're not Don't even worry. covering the, like the one episode that was interesting that I watched this week. <laughs> you know, I feel for Nicole right now because I definitely was on board team. You should watch Lost in Space next after watching the first episode, which had a lot of crazy like science. It stuff did. In it. Yeah, it did. And now there's uh, it's they've really cut back on the crazy wackadoo science they- stuff. Indeed, they have, yes. Well, part of the problem is they have science, I'm using air quotes, uh, that is, like, not any way resembling what we actually know as science, but they don't bother to, like, explain in any way, so it's, like, almost impossible to critique. Yeah, it's this is true, and, like... I think part of the problem is, like, we discussed on our last Loss of Space episode is that there's just not a ton of plot in these episodes either. And so, because of the fact that there's not a ton of plot, it also just means that there's less science that they're, you know, using and explaining. Now, the good benefit to that is I think I can actually summarize this first episode we watched, which is episode six, in a reasonable time. First, (laughs) we should at least, like, mention, hey, Ryan is here, and he's your brother. I. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm her brother. I uh, took one college science class called the uh, it's like the history of scientific thought. <laughs> so half of our labs were like replicating the results of like the ancient Greeks and being like, well, that's what we used to think was science, but it's not. <laughs> that's so fantastic. Um, I I mean, but Ryan is. I would say moderately science curious and kind of a nerd. So that's all that matters for this podcast. Like as long as you aren't out there saying, I don't believe that science is a real thing that exists. We're pretty okay with you being on our podcast. Exactly. Exactly. So I have volunteered to summarize episode six. So at the end of episode five, the mom Robinson uh, told us that there was like a black hole and it was bad using some hmm, bad theoretical science. 
and in the beginning of this episode, she's explaining it to uh, Papa Robinson. And basically, as far as I can tell, what she's saying is that there's a black hole on the other side of the star that's at the center of this universe. And when their planet gets to the part of rotation that is near that black hole, all life on the planet will be destroyed. Yeah, it was really unclear to me. Also, it's not the star at the center of the universe, at the center of the solar system. I'm sorry. I, I want to put a pin in this and yeah, discuss we'll, it more detail we should discuss later. This later. Yeah. But just so we know, something confusing is happening because there's a black hole. And the result is that Miss Mama Robinson thinks they're all going to die if they don't get off the planet fast enough. Because of that, Don, who is the smuggler kind of guy who works for the transport company, reminds them that he knows where uh, Jupiter that still has all its fuel is, which is the one that he crash landed in. And so a party goes to retrieve the fuel. And that party includes Judy and Don, but does not include any of the other Robinsons. It also includes the like proto-president guy. Uh, that expedition is a whole part of the episode. What they basically do is take forever getting out there because there are a bunch of what they call these cryo geysers that are like shooting up and they have to go around them. And then they can't see the Jupiter right away because it's buried under like the rock sand. And then they do find it. And while they are getting the fuel out, they realize that it's kind of precariously perched. So they have to use the Jupiter's pulling backwards on one side of it to make up for the fact that they're removing all of this heavy fuel from the side that was kind of anchoring it in before it tips. So the tips Jupiter- Tips over a cliff. Tips that's, over a cliff. where it is. Yes. So the Jupiter storyline part of this, all of these storylines are like mixed together, but I'm just going to tell through each storyline because it's silly to swap between them in a synopsis. So they are able to successfully get all of the fuel for a little bit. It seems like Don has passed by falling over the cliff. Because he went in to look up Dr. Smith's, more information about Dr. Smith. Uh, But he did actually make it and he has Dr. Smith's badge and can prove that Dr. Smith is not who she says she is. At the end of the episode, they are heading back but are not able to make it all the way. So they decide to camp overnight. Meanwhile, back at camp, the evil Dr. Smith, who we all know is not actor Dr. Smith, is wanting to get control of the robot without having to, like, get control of the robot. At the very beginning of the episode, they vote on whether or not to keep the robot around. And they do end up voting to keep the robot around, but not before one of the passengers who had been um, injured by the robot and whose husband was killed by the robot back in orbit space has like a really big testimony about like this being a problem. And so the doctor in the under the guise of therapy kind of makes that particular passenger really unstable. And that passenger in this episode discovered the gun that Dr. Smith found and hid in the woods. And so that that through line is that the passenger who's now been made very unstable by Dr. Smith comes in and tries to shoot the robot. And when that passenger tries to shoot the robot, Larry uh, responds in like iron giant mode where he goes into like defensive and ends up throwing Mr. Robinson who tries to stop him to the side where he gets injured. And Will comes back just in time to stop the robot but uh now will is very concerned for the safety of everyone and so at the very end of the episode will takes the robot up to a cliff and tells the robot to destroy itself by walking over the cliff and larry does that um it's pretty dramatic 
I think it's worth noting once again that Larry is the name that we made up for the robot, and the I'm robot's sorry. name is not canonically Larry. So whenever you hear Larry, that's just us talking about. Yeah, the if Caitlin wasn't which... my sister, I would have been so confused. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if you listen to our very first Lost in Space episode, I decided that the the robot's name was Larry. Yes, I'm sorry. (laughs) And the other main plot point for this episode is that, of course, at the beginning episode, oh, I guess there's two other threads, but one of them is less relevant. Uh, When Mrs. Robinson and Papa Robinson were uh, talking about the whole black hole, Penny overheard them. And a big part of that discussion was, should we tell everyone else? And Mrs. Robinson and Papa Robinson kind of decide not to because they're afraid that there will be panic. So during this episode, the Japanese scientists who are like the extraterrestrial life specialists, basically, he already knows that something is wrong with the planet because he Yeah, this says, doesn't actually matter. I'm not going to lie. Well, yes. Basically, what matters is he says even the oldest trees have only one ring and he's realized that like all the, all life cycles on this planet are like very fast and very short, I guess. Oh, that's so weird. That's the only reason I mention it. Otherwise, it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, that's very stupid. Yeah, or maybe that, um, that planet doesn't have a tilt to it. Just saying. Uh, and then Penny, who overhears this, decides that she is going to make her move on the hot boy because she... <laughs> that she's been blackmailing. <laughs> that she's been blackmailing. <laughs> there is no episode that it is more clear that Penny is just a teenager being a teenager. And I guess I'm going to have to forgive her a little. So she like hatches this plan to like take him to go swimming and take him with and then like fall in and be rescued and then kiss him. And that doesn't happen because like the waterfall has mysteriously dried up. But they do end up talking and making out. Uh, and she also makes she also lets it slip that like the planet is doomed. And remember, the hot guy she's been blackmailing is the son of the proto president. So that happens. She swears him to secrecy, but that happens. That's basically everything important that happens in this episode. <laughs> Penny, Penny's <laughs> Penny's relationship with this guy continues to amuse me because she is like very assertive in their relationship and he appears to be fine with the fact that she's like blackmailed him in the past like it's all fine it's all good oh we also (laughs) find out that the thing she was using to blackmail him she gives it back to him before they make out so it's like a little less creepy we find out that it was actually like a really extremely terrible poem he just took the time to write when he thought they were gonna die on the like ship And it is both extremely bad teenage poetry, and I'm like, how did you have time to write this? <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, I mean, to was... be fair, if if you were going to blackmail a teenage boy with anything, you know, it might as well be a bad oh, poem. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. She's I, like, this is probably it, a it's... secret. And he's like, it's a poem, <laughs> but I still don't want anybody to know about it. <laughs> it's funny because I, I totally agree with Caitlin. Like, the teenager storylines in that episode, 100% believable. <laughs> yes. Do we want to go back to talking about this completely unscientific reason that they all need to get off the planet as fast as possible? Yeah. It, it, I agree. I was so confused by this. The only reason why I know that they... Like, the issue is that they're getting too close to the sun is that they bring it up in the next episode. The way that she describes it, she's like, there are different types of binary systems. In this case, there's a black hole and also the sun, and then we're all going to die. Yeah, it it, it does make it sound like, oh, we'll go past the black hole and everything on the planet gets sucked in. 
but not the planet, just like everything on the planet. <laughs> yeah. Just like a giant vacuum cleaner like sucks it all into the sky. Yeah, and that I know I know that's not what they intend to be the case because they talk about how the planet is getting hotter. Yeah. And that like the the black hole is going to draw the planet yeah. towards the sun. So, and the the and, uh the water disappears. So Right. Right, which is weird because a waterfall, even if it gets hotter, like your, your waterfall's not just going to evaporate. Well, at the source of the water, which is closer to the sun in the mountains. <laughs> I'm very confused by this being the apparent explanation, because if the black hole's gravitational pull is powerful enough to draw their planet closer to the sun, but it's not powerful enough to affect the star that they're calling the sun... I don't know what's happening. I know. It's weird because gravity is a force that always draws you towards something. It doesn't push you away from something, but it almost sounds like the black hole is pushing the planet towards the sun, but that's not the way that gravity works. No. I also was very confused by this. Like, I am not a black hole expert, but we did just literally cover Interstellar, and I just want to, like, send you back there and all the stuff that they actually tried to do that is like kind of what we know about black holes and then compare that to this like okay just a sec i'm i you can keep talking i want to double check what her explanation is again because it was oh it's just so confusing Uh, yeah it's i mean and that's why i say like they kind of ostensibly have science happening, but they don't give you enough information to actually tell what they're trying to say, except whatever they're saying, based on the information we have, is not right. I mean, like, it might be something like they're trying to say, like, the black hole somehow puts the, um, the that planet into a kind of oblong orbit, where it spends large amounts of time away, you know, further away from the sun, and then comes in for a real fast pass close to the sun. But then it'd be hard for like life to develop on a planet like that because you're getting, you know, the, the far off parts of it. If you look at celestial objects that have that sort of, uh, you know, orbit in our solar system, it's stuff like comets, right? Where they're, they go way out into nowhere for years at a time and then come back and whoosh around the sun in like six months and then go back. And it, it's hard to imagine that like a planetary sized body could be drawn into that, sort of orbit again no expert on planet uh orbitary orbital mechanics here but like the i mean maybe that's why they introduced the black hole into it is they're like well that black hole is going to be necessary to get a you know planetary sized body into some sort of irregular or non-circular ish orbit yeah but you bring up a really good point that was very confusing to me which is when they so we've commented a little bit on how like amazing kind of the various landscapes of this planet is and how they have way different biospheres all close to each other and then they are like oh and every tree only has one ring which like what and then which again doesn't mean that they all die it could also mean there's just no seasons like it's always growing right so it's also like they're trying to imply that all of this growth that we've seen on the planet I think what they're trying to imply is it all has happened in only one cycle. Like, the- I think that's right. That's what they're trying so to imply for sure. Either it's growing extremely fast, which we have not seen evidence of yet, or this, the orbit of this planet makes years like extremely long, which also is not super believable because if the orbit is so big that a year is so long that all this growth happens in one pass around the sun, then 
like the further you get out from the sun, the harder it is for stuff to grow. So here's the thing that we're not keeping into mind. I heard y'all talk on a previous podcast. You're like, how could this balloon thing float up high enough to see all this stuff going on? And y'all were assuming that the the air had the same density on this planet that it does on our Earth. You know, if they have a much denser um, atmosphere, they could go higher in the air. And also they would have a, a greater coating of atmosphere to retain heat. So they could, I mean, the sun would get Yeah, dim. but if you, okay, f- there's, a, there's a couple of things about that, though. If... If the atmosphere is too thick, it will trap too much heat and they'll all die. Um, I mean, that's what that's why Venus is so hot because it has uh, an extremely thick atmosphere yeah. that traps in a ton of. The Unless sun's there heat. are other elements to the ecosystem that are con- that are maintaining a balance of your planetary gases and stuff, so it it just is the right amount of heat. And we already know that on this planet there are some animals that consume things that normally animals don't consume. You know that there's animals that eat methane, which, by the way, that should be a reason that they should be like, we don't need to lose hope because there's got to be methane on this planet somewhere if these animals have developed to eat it. Like, where else are they getting it? So, like, you know, if we know that there's, like, unusual bioforms on this planet, it is possible that these bioforms help keep the atmosphere of the planet in a way that regulates it so it can maintain life even despite all of that those setbacks i guess it's like i guess it's possible but that would be so beyond anything that happens on earth that i don't think that we could really even comment on right and they they also clearly have not thought of this like they're the people that are describing this are not saying like yeah this is definitely what's happening overly speculative like you know, for example, like the ozone on the Earth will be able to repair itself, but it'll take two hundred years for that to happen. Like it, it things things that happen on a geological scale like that occur very, very slowly. And you're talking about all of this yeah, happening. It's not in a. One I'm not year. talking about it happening in a geological scale. I'm talking about it happening at a biological scale. That there's some sort of. But, you're, but you are talking life. about a geological scale because you're talking about the atmosphere of the entire planet. Yeah, which is, you know, modified by the beings that are within it. So if you've got, you know, if it's the equivalent of like if if but humans... But global warming doesn't occur that quickly. Well, we don't, also don't know what the planetary year of this, the, the period of this planet is. Like they've, they've but that's and, what Caitlin was saying, is that if the planetary year is too long, it will be so far away from the the star that there's a good chance it would be too cold for for life period. Well, it's not that it would be too cold, I think, because again, we're we're saying that there could be some sort of biological um modification being done by critters on the planet. Um you know, you I just I just think that's overly speculative. Like I'm I'm not saying like in a science fiction universe it's impossible. But I think you're giving the show too much credit. Hey, you know, like, I'm just saying, like, if we're going to criticize, we're going to be like, this show doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, it might make sense if you think about it in this way. Is there any indication that the writers of this All show right, have so thought about it in this way? give me an example of something on Earth that does that. That does... That, that modifies the atmosphere on that sort of scale that you're describing. Well, I think this is the core problem here, is that this show is filmed on Earth in British Columbia, pretty clearly. But in order for things to be the way they're saying they are, <laughs> in right, order for yeah. things to be the way that they're saying they are in like all of this danger, 
that planet has to function very significantly differently than Earth does, but they're still stuck showing us Earth landscapes that they've just like slightly modified with very expensive CGI. I mean, we don't know that the the landscapes necessarily are going to look very different, and and we already have seen examples too of places where you know stuff behaves very differently to the way it behaves. Uh, on Earth, for example, the way that Judy was frozen in that lake in episode one, very different <laughs> from how you'd expect somebody to be frozen in a lake on Earth. I think the like, problem, Ryan, is that you're approaching this from the standpoint of like, things work differently on this planet. This makes sense. And me, I'm approaching it from the standpoint of I don't think any of the writers have thought through any of these scientific <laughs> concepts they've presented and applied to this planet in a way that I am going to give them enough credit to justify it making sense. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, one of the interesting things is that nobody here says, how the heck does any of this work? Because I could, you know, if the writers didn't have an explanation for like, oh, there's critters that, you know, manage, essentially naturally manage the composition of the atmosphere so it maintains the right heat levels or and maybe it, it causes like, there's some well, sort of gravitational lensing. Too much credit. Yeah, but I mean, like, you can leave that out because you can say, like, they just landed there. They don't know how things work. They are relating things to their previous experience back on Earth. But then what you need to do is you have to have, like, that scientist being like, I don't, like, that Japanese scientist has to be like, I don't know what the heck is going on here. Like, it's weird. And then she can be like, I know, we're all going to die. And he's like, oh, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. You know, like, that's, that's kind of the failure is there's not. There's not a sense of wonder in any of the like scientific, ex- you know, quote unquote scientific explorations being done by people on this planet. It's mostly used as an excuse for you know people to figure out better ways to like hurt each other and or smooch each other. Which I mean, that's true of a lot of sci-fi, but yeah, there's no sense of wonder. There's no sense of danger. Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely true. And like I said, I think that's that's part of the problem that we have with this show is that. You know, if they had been like, hey, that there are, you know, there's biology on this life that regulates this atmosphere in a way that we have never seen on Earth, that would be interesting. But this has literally never come up. Yeah. I did rewatch the explanation again. It doesn't help. She literally <laughs> just says there's a black hole on the other side of the sun and it's drawing the orbit. Like, basically what it sounds like is that there, the black hole is basically in the the place that the the planet's orbit would go normally if there was no black hole, but because there is a black hole, it's kind of drawing the planet in between the black hole and the star, so it's going artificially close to the star. Like I said, it sounds like the black hole is in the place of where the planet's orbit would be normally, and because of that, it's drawing the planet to it, like it's to the space in between the black hole and the the star. But if that was the case. Like, I don't know that I'm trying to think about that. It's that might be possible, but then I don't see why the star is not orbiting the black hole, for example. Again, black holes, not my specialty, but I really feel like none of the writers of the show have been working with someone who's later going to publish a paper about black holes based on <laughs> uh, their consulting. So I'm pretty sure I heard of a like a discredited theory that somebody had where like, there's uh, maybe it wasn't a black hole. It was just that there was a planet that was exactly opposite Earth, and we just wouldn't know it existed because it would always be behind the sun, opposite, like orbiting directly opposite us. And people are like, "Yeah, that's not how it works." But like, for a while, this person was like, "Well, it explains so much about orbits and blah blah blah." 
So I thought maybe they were going for something like that, but I can't actually find it any information be. on it. I I will at least give them credit that when they're explaining the orbit, they do use an oblong orbit instead of just like making it circular around the star and pretty much all planets do have an oblong orbit. So at least they knew that. The other thing I wanted to talk about just very briefly, there is an extremely brief conversation about doctor patient privilege between Mrs. Robinson, Mama Robinson, whatever we're calling her, and the supposed Dr. Smith. And I just want to just have a a brief note here that uh, doctor patient privilege is bounded or in some ways limited by laws in specific places. So laws in various states and like judicial precedent has changed what it is. And we're in this weird space place that has weird space laws. So those would in theory like affect it, but the precedent's just probably not there yet. I will say, though, in general, if you know that somebody is going to die, you can break doctor-patient confidentiality. It's, it's very interesting because it's, there's a pretty famous case in California that says if you know of a specific threat against a specific person, you have to tell that, you have to warn that person. Because there was a case where they didn't warn a person and that person later died. And then there's a more expansive case in Washington that suggests it, if there's a threat but it's less specific, you might have to disclose um, and then there's sp- things where you're like required to disco- disclose by law. Like if you have evidence of abuse against children that's happening right now, you have to disclose that. So you're saying we shouldn't get our legal advice from a science fiction television show? <laughs> <laughs> well, and also remember that Dr. Smith is not a real doctor. Yes, <laughs> exactly. True. So she can just whip out like stuff that she saw on TV. She'd be like, it's like, oh, yeah. you know, doctor patient triviality, tri- doctor doctor patient uh, confidentiality. I can't tell you without Mirandizing you, so you know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you have the right to remain silent. You know, you can talk to me if you want, but you have the right to remain silent. I will say, I know that Nicole hated this, but we finally see Doctor Smith transition from just like being creepy and sitting around the edges and looking like she's going to do something evil to like actively doing evil things in this episode. I think my problem with Dr. Smith is less like she is a card carrying villain. Oh, a hundred percent. And I don't know that now that I think about it more, I don't know that the, that is necessarily my problem. I think my problem is that the show treats her like she is an evil genius mastermind. When really everyone on the show is just too dumb to realize that she's an evil genius mastermind. And so if she was really like playing out the cards, that would be interesting. But here it's more like she's manipulating everyone and it feels so blatantly obvious that if any two people talk to each other about how Dr. Smith had treated them, they would realize that she's manipulating them, but nobody actually talks to each other. I mean, I think that's why in this episode, Don, like, really moves up a lot in my, like, character hierarchy, because he's (laughs) the one who's like, she screwed me over, I don't believe her, and then finds evidence, and then talks to Judy, and everyone else is still like, oh no, how could this be? And it's like, come on, when has she ever done something that doesn't directly serve her? Exactly. I think that's my problem. As people, we often pick people who are only looking out for themselves to be in positions of leadership over us, uh, even if they don't (sighs) appear to care at all for the people that they're serving and sometimes actively hurt them to serve their own interests. I don't 
I don't. <laughs> I can't think of any real you life know, examples of that, right? I will say that research shows that narcissists often are very successful because self promotion is a big part of success. And who's better at self promotion than a narcissist? Um, speaking of her bad therapy, though, did anybody look into it about the whole sense memories thing? Is that a real thing? I did not, and I. I didn't even think to because she's not a real doctor. I mean, here's one thing I will say is when you <laughs> Google sense memories, I didn't do a lot of research. When you Google sense memories, you see some stuff that's related to therapy. If you like specify therapy, you also see a lot of stuff that's related to acting. So <laughs> I think it kind of fits with the whole like Dr. Smith watches a lot of TV or like Dr. Smith is an actor. <laughs> She might be carrying a villain card, but she is not carrying her identification card because that was left with the wreckage. But um, <laughs> I think that's all I have to talk about on that episode because I wanted to save the cryo geysers for the next episode when they're a bigger part of it. There were a couple other things I wanted to mention about this one. One, they build a cairn. In the wilderness. They do. Oh, yes. Sorry. And I don't know if y'all knew this, but cairns are bad. Well, I should I shouldn't I should be I should be more simple. When you're in a public place like a national or state park, don't build a cairn because you'll either confuse people who are looking for it as a legitimate trail marker or annoy people who are looking to enjoy the wildlife and environment. On a, a planet where everything is gonna be destroyed by the sun and or being sucked into space by a black hole. <laughs> Again, it was not obvious when I first watched this what they were referring to. Uh, then, you know, then I think you're probably fine. But, you know, if anybody's trying to imitate this uh, activity that the father and son do to build a memorial cairn, just, you know, think about your fellow park goers. I will say that the cairn was one of the rare moments where I thought that Papa Robinson was being an okay parent. Because the whole reason he built the cairn with Will was to show him, like, the robot can stay, but you need to realize how dangerous the robot is. And, like, okay, sure. As opposed to, you know, Papa Robinson's normal thing, which is just to yell at people and also tell Will that he didn't raise him this way, when it's clear he was never a significant portion of Will's life. Yeah, so in the next episode, I'm I'm really struggling to remember everything that happens just because, like, everything just blends together. But I will do my best. Uh, basically, the team that's coming back with the rocket fuel, um, there is an earthquake. And because of that, they cannot use the path that they had used to get out there to get back. So instead, they have to go across this big field where there are a bunch of geysers. And they time the geysers and find out that... They go off about every three minutes. So they attempt to drive across this landscape in three minutes. The uh, car with the rocket fuel, though, has an issue with the brakes. So one of the passengers gets out and plugs the brake line back in, which just seems like terrible engineering. Unfortunately, he gets very badly injured because they don't get across the field quite in time. And so one of the geysers goes off and it traps him underneath the fuel tank. And somehow he's not dead. Somehow he's not dead. The fuel tank also gets punctured by a big rock. So they realize that if they move the fuel tank to pull him out, a lot of the rocket fuel will come out. And the leader guy who's with them is like, no, we can't. We can't do this. Like, it's you know one life versus many. But Judy gets really upset. So Don moves the tanker anyways. They lose a bunch of the rocket fuel, but they're able to pull the guy out. But unfortunately, he also dies. 
also important is that Judy and Dawn are talking about what to do about the revelation that Dr. Smith is not who she says she is. And Judy wants to call her mom and say, like, hey, mom, Dr. Smith is not who she says she is. But Dr. Smith picks up and then Judy acts very suspicious. And presumably from from things that later happen, this kind of alerts Dr. Smith to, like, Judy knows something. Back on the ship... Papa and Mama Robinson, I don't even remember what they're doing. They're, like, out in the woods for some reason. And their Jupiter ship thing gets stuck in a tar pit. And they almost die because they can't get out of the ship. And they apparently have no knowledge of how to navigate your way out of a tar pit. And so the ship, not the ship, the the car thingy, the rover, sinks into the tar. And then... Oh, sorry, Papa the Robinson. rovers are called Jupiters. I think I called the ship a Jupiter earlier, but they're called something else. The no, little rovers are yeah. called. Because the, 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 the rovers have like Jupiter 1, 2, 3 or whatever on the side of them. I think it's that each like unit that is has a family on it contains some rovers, and they're all named after. That could very well be, mm. yeah. Um. Anyways, the little rover sinks, and Papa Robinson is about to let Mama Robinson use their one space suit to somehow get out of the tar. It was very unclear to me what their plan was. She's going to swim uh, up but there. She swim through the tar in a space suit. But then at the last minute, she realizes that they have a bunch of helium on board. And so they can use the helium and use it to inflate a tunnel. And that the helium is light, so it will rise the surface, and so they can make this giant cloth tunnel, and then just climb out of the tar pit. And so they do that. They are successful. Um, and my notes say I'm still not sure how their plan worked. Yep. <laughs> um, and then, <laughs> basically just back at the ship with everyone else, Will's real sad about Larry. He's real sad. And so he and Penny make a little Larry statue. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Smith continues to be creepy. Yes. And importantly for the next episode, which we will not be covering here, uh, Penny, who uh, ends up having to cancel a rendezvous with her new boyfriend or whatever um, to hang out with her brother, he ends up telling his parents way at the very end of the episode what he knows about the black hole. Yes, he ends up telling his parents that the the planet is doomed and at the very end their leader guy is like fine we're getting off this planet and he doesn't say we meaning we as a people all together he means our family the three of us well to be fair there's a there's a fourth rando guy on their ship oh okay i don't know who that dude is actually but yes all right, so what do we want to cover in this episode? Cryo geysers, oh, obviously. Uh, also, uh, the 3D printer watermark is on my list. You want to talk about the first because it's pretty small? Sure. A small thing, an even smaller thing. Uh, they keep talking about stuff in Imperial units uh, when it really wouldn't make <laughs> sense for the story. Like, I'm not a person that hates the Imperial system. Like, I think a lot of people in other countries that primarily use the metric system underestimate like how much they also use customary units in day-to-day use <coughs> England, <coughs> UK and Canada for that matter. Uh, but the, you know, the fact that it's a group of scientists from a lot of different countries, they would definitely be talking in like kilometers and, and, Oh yeah. And all, like all of the units that they use. Whenever, 
whenever they say something in pounds instead of kilograms, I'm honestly surprised. Yeah, it's just like if it were another show, I wouldn't notice as much. But they like they're they're doing all of these calculations usually in their head with imperial units, and it's like. Y'all, it's way easier if you use metric units, like, and it would fit the story. Well, You're all scientists, like, especially as you pointed out with a an international team of scientists. Yeah. Like you're not gonna be convincing those Japanese scientists, like, hey, you know what would be really great if you use miles instead of kilometers. Right. As scientists, nope. again, there's a <laughs> lot of people that like they're like, we don't use like miles ever, and it's like, yeah, everybody, y'all talk about miles, but they're like scientists doing calculations in their head, like it should not be in miles. They should not be in pounds. There are certain situations where it would make sense, no matter where you are, to still use those types of units, but scientists. International, scientists. like future. They, There's, yeah. They're 100% using metric. And in any other science show, they would just say like, uh, yeah, it's like two clicks from here or whatever. And you'd be like, I get it. Like, it's not like, I think like they did it right. so that people would understand like, oh, it's this much and this much. But like, you don't have to understand. You could have two. I think, well, I think number one, like people understand generally that like a kilometer is the, you know, metric version of a mile like they're not they're not exactly the same distance but like i people understand when you're talking about kilometers you're talking about distance if you really wanted to make it not confusing to your u.s audience you could have like one of your american characters from the show be like oh you know 60 kilometers that's like right you know 40 miles if you take the time to explain carpe diem to us because we're all seven-year-old children (laughs) <laughs> then you should you could also take the time to have a character whose job is just to be like oh yeah that's like this many miles when the scientists exactly. use kilometers <laughs> exactly exactly yes I, I yes i have a feeling this is not a new problem for y'all but like i just especially when they're calculating like all the specifics of like crossing those cryo geysers and like boop, 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 in their heads and i'm like yeah, no. Why are they using all these units? It doesn't make sense. Here's here's the thing. I want to talk about cryogeysers, but I want to preface this with I could not find a lot of information about cryogeysers, and it seems like the problem is is that we don't know that much about cryogeysers. We know that they're a thing, but we don't know the mechanism by which they work. So the the geysers that they have on the planet, they talk about them being geysers of um different types of gases rather than geysers that you think about on earth being generally liquids uh and that's definitely true and uh the japanese scientist that's talking about them says for example on mars cryo geysers are co2 and that's absolutely true um mars has a bunch of these cryo geysers made of co2 um i think the biggest issue that i had with this is more that they have a very solid ground that these geysers are sort of erupting out of. And the geysers never appear to erupt out of the same location twice. And that seems very bizarre to me because you would think that if they're erupting, they're probably going to erupt in the same location more than once. Um, I will say that apparently the, the geysers on mars do erupt in these big dune fields that look kind of similar to the ones on the show so i guess maybe that is somewhat similar but yes the 
I, I think that was basically my biggest problem is that you have this very firmly packed earth and you have these geysers erupting out of it, but like the earth is not pockmarked. Somehow the, the ground all like becomes solid again and you never see the geysers erupting out of the same place twice. Nicole, what makes them cryo geysers? Like, is it actually cryogenically cool? So it, I don't know. Basically, it seems like cryo geyser is just another way of saying geyser on another planet, from what I could tell. What? That does what? <laughs> so it, it, I don't know if it has anything to do because when I was looking this up, I like I said, I had a lot of trouble finding any information on cryo geysers. I ended up reading the Wikipedia article on geysers on Mars because. When I looked up Cryogeyser, I guess that there is a big band that is, or like an indie band that's called Cryogeyser. And so that's where, I, like, most of the information was coming from. So I had to mm. do, like, Cryogeyser Mars in order to get any information. Cryogeyser is basically just a, like, a, a an eruption that is from gas on another planet rather than from steam, like, on Earth. I don't know if the name has anything to do with cryovolcanoes which i also found information about when i was researching which are volcanoes on other planets but instead of spewing out magma they'll spew out a combination of gases and like water so that you have a frozen eruption which would make more sense for the term cryo yeah that would make more sense for the term cryo so those also exist but cryogeysers are not the same thing as cryovolcanoes. The other thing that I thought was interesting in this episode, too, is the, the fact that they note that the cryogeysers are so regular. And they mention it being even more regular than Old Faithful. And I just want to note that Old Faithful is an extremely unusual geyser in that it it erupts regularly. Most geysers do not erupt regularly. And the reason that Old Faithful erupts regularly regularly just happens to be the the specific geology around old faithful i mean that could be possible too in this giant sponge place <laughs> um but considering that they they imply that there's a lot of rapid rates of change on this planet too just in like oh there was a waterfall here and now it's gone like there's all these earthquakes all over that that does yeah. not usually belie such regular periodicity <laughs> or well and you would think and I think that's actually a really good point. You would think that since there was just an earthquake in the area, it would affect those cryogeysers erupting in that specific location. But but no, they're still perfectly regular. Apparently the earthquake was just a localized earthquake, as we know all earthquakes are. Well, I don't think they measured the period of the geysers until they had to like drive across them. So if it was different prior to the the earthquake, then we wouldn't really know. I guess so, but because we do see the eruptions occurring earlier, and there appears to be no change in how the eruptions occur at all or their location. True, but it, you know it's not measured. So one other thing that I think is funny too is that they mention that this is to be expected because they will see more seismic activity the closer they get to the sun. And I just want to have a friendly reminder that seismic activity has nothing to do with the sun. <laughs> It, it has to do with your planet. <laughs> right. Yeah, I also, this whole sequence also confused me because if they're trying to race across as fast as they possibly can and they have one of these, like, rovers that is laden by towing the fuel and the other one is completely unladen by towing the fuel and they're both going flat out as fast as they can, why are they both going the same speed? 
assumed that <laughs> one of them had more horsepower than the other. But yes, I, fa- I found that bizarre as well. And I also thought it was funny that there is just an exposed brake cable apparently at the back of this rover that is very easy to disconnect. So I, I don't think it's a brake cable per se. What it is is a control cable that allows the um, the vehicle that's driving to control the things that are on the trailer. Is it? Because I'm pretty sure that he plugged that cable back into the same rover. Yeah, he plugged it into the same rover, but it had come out between the rover and the trailer. It's like when you hook up a boat trailer and you got to like plug the little wires in so that the turn signals work. It's like that, but imagine that there's like also brakes on the trailer and apparently it fails the the fail safe for it is it the brakes turn on if that control cable is disconnected. Oh, okay. I was so confused why not having brakes would be a problem when you're trying to go as fast as you can. But it makes more sense if the failsafe is that the brakes turn on automatically. That was the problem. I just thought that it was on the same unit. I I don't know. Regardless, it seems like poor engineering that it would be so easy to disconnect while you're driving. Yeah, I mean, it should be there should uh, there should be more redundancy on a interplanetary rover than there would be (laughs) on your boat trailer. I will say that much about it. Um, but that's true of a lot of science fiction movies. Like, uh, you know, I just watched uh, Interstellar and there was n- like zero redundancy on all of that stuff. And I was like, this seems like bad engineering. Yeah. Well, Interstellar has a lot of interesting issues. <laughs> this whole sequence, I think, is just to set up that Judy is focused on the individual and the leader person is focused on like the whole. And also just for there to be a problem because they can never succeed for more than one episode at a time. But Judy does like choose to save this to to attempt to save this one person at the cost of the fuel which is good for all of them and he does later die of shock while they're transferring back I just want to mention that he should have crush like evidence of crushing and crush wounds all over his torso and when we see his torso Mm -hmm. there's no bruises there's no injury and a lot of crush wounds would be like internal so we wouldn't necessarily see that but we should see bruises, which are an external mark of internal. Yeah, yeah and instead problem. he had a beautiful chest. <laughs> I'm gonna be I'm gonna be totally honest with you guys. I did not Google images of crush wounds because I just don't want to do that to myself. But like crush also, wounds. Also, if you if you're not visible. careful with that Google search, you, I think you'll find more than just wounds. <laughs> I think too. Uh, <laughs> there's there's a part where he starts flatlining and judy does cpr on him oh my goodness and friendly reminder that cpr is much more aggressive than what you usually see in movies and tv shows and generally cpr is not something that you use to bring someone back to life but to keep them alive until they can have emergency intervention so yeah she does some some kind of fake tv cpr on just like the top, very top yes. of his chest while he's still under the thing, which is like, no. And then later she's using um, a, what Defib- do they call it, an AED, no. an automated external defibrillator. But I just like, just so you guys know, if you ever get trained in those, they're great. They analyze everything for you. All you really have to know is like keep people cleared and like push the button, but they don't work for every type of like irregular heartbeat. They only work for very specific types of irregular yeah. heartbeats and they're not necessarily going to cure shock. Well, she had him. Like, she had him pre-plugged into that too. He had those pads on him the whole time. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I I will say that I at least appreciated the fact that 
the defibrillator didn't work because usually in movies and TV shows, the defibrillator is this magic thing that can bring you back to life no matter what happened. And I think one time I looked up an article on how effective defibrillators are. And it was something like if you can get to the person within two minutes, there's about a 50% success rate. And that's within hospitals. So... It, it is not, like, I at least appreciate the fact that the defibrillator didn't work, but yes, uh, yes to everything else. Yeah. What it did work in doing is making his body, like, rise up a whole, you know, like, <laughs> couple decimeters above the floor of that van. Yes. Like, he, he was just, like, he was just, uh, you know, he was just exorcisting, like, <laughs> high into the air with every single time that she shouted clear. Yes, definitely. Do you want to talk about tar pits? Uh, we can talk about them a little bit. We should talk about the tar pit situation. <laughs> I don't. I, so I didn't do a ton of research on tar pits. Uh, did you? Did you research this, Caitlin? Because I know that you were really ranting about it. I did a little bit, but not a ton, because quite honestly, I didn't want to get into the whole sinkhole thing. I know there's like a lot of stuff, but I basically uh, like the tar pit that I know exists is the little brand tar pits, which we talked about in Volcano briefly. They are some pretty well-known tar pits, like right in the middle of Los Angeles. And what Nicole is noting is my rant was about how initially they're sinking extremely slowly into this tar pit. And then they finally like get a line from their rover to like the edge. And then the entire rover sinks in like less than a minute. After yes. having spent much time sinking the first, I don't know, foot. Yes. <laughs> but I did not actually figure out whether or not that is, like, entirely accurate. My guess is no, but if you're a tar pit or sinkhole expert, let me know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, tar pits and sinkholes are different things. Yes, and I guess not sinkholes, but uh, sand, what is that called? Quicksand? When sand. Quicksand? Thank you. <laughs> quicksand <laughs> is also a different thing, though. <laughs> Because uh, quicksand is like a weird mixture of water and sand. The tar pits are like a natural asphalt that exists in nature. Hence the name natural. One thing that I thought was funny is that this show seems to imply that there is a bottom to the tar pit. And that's not... There's not like... It's not a pool. It's not like a pool filled with tar. Well, yes and no. So there's a really interesting, there's a podcast I listened to called Criminal that did an episode where the LA like police diving crew that normally like will dive to find evidence or try to find people or bodies at the bottom of like water had to try to retrieve evidence from the bottom of the La Brea tar pits. And it's very interesting. It talks about the challenges they had, how hard it is to like swim through tar. I think that's when Nicole was like, somehow Mama Robinson was going to make it out in this spacesuit. <laughs> and it's not like completely impossible, but you can't just like swim through tar. Well, um, especially when you're being weighed down by a spacesuit. Yeah. So the the diver who did this, they interview him. Basically, like there were a lot of, str- they'd had a ton of training for it. They like did a ton of preparation and so it's just, I mean, it was kind of a last ditch effort. Like I'll sacrifice myself. So you, it was really just so they could fix their marriage without actually fixing their marriage, but it wasn't a good plan. None of the plans were good plans. And I'm still not totally sure how the plan that they did use actually worked. 
they were expecting the helium to just rise through the tar pit, and I guess the helium would be less dense than the tar. Well, I don't think they were expecting it to rise. I think they were expecting it to be able to push enough out to make a tunnel. But at one point they say our body weight will cause it to sink to the bottom and then we can like get to the edge. Yeah, it was very weird. Um, The other thing is, granted, I have never been stuck in a tar pit. Yes. But a few things. I did find a Quora article uh, where someone said, is it impossible for a person to escape while stuck in a tar pit? And an intern at the La Brea tar pit said, also, I've gotten out of every tar pit I've worked on there. So it's like, it's not impossible. And to me, the the obvious solution from the beginning would be to find something on the vehicle that you could spread out on the tar pit and use that to distribute your weight enough to escape. Yeah. Initially, I thought that they weren't, like, taking apart the vehicle because they wanted to save the vehicle. Right, I agree. But they just to trash the vehicle anyway. I agree. So it's kind of like... It's like, why didn't you, for example, remove the doors, chuck the doors over the side, then you could have crawled across the doors to the edge. And if you had yeah. had that, like, you could have had someone, you know, throw a cable to the side, and then maybe you would have been able to get your vehicle out later or something. Yeah. Yeah, because there's definitely cables on all these rovers. So you, th- you know, because they, they use them yeah. earlier in these episodes to pull that right. spaceship and counterweight the spaceship when they're getting the fuel out of it. Right. It was just like it. It was weird because I totally agree with you, Caitlin. At first, I was like, "Well, you're, they're trying not to trash the vehicle," but then they trashed the vehicle and they lost it the above a tar pit. So it, it didn't matter. So fast. Yes. After singing so slow to start. And, like, maybe there's some weird physics thing I haven't looked up. I don't know. Correct me in the comments. Um, The other thing that's weird to me is they create this tunnel full of helium, presumably. uh, But then they never talk about the fact that, like, you can suffocate in tunnels if there's not enough oxygen. And at the very beginning, they're, they're, like, sharing the oxygen from the suit. But then they never share it after that. And I don't think this is a short tunnel. So that's weird to me, too. Especially because they get out and for, like, a second they actually have helium voice and then they don't anymore and i i just don't know how they got from point a and point b in the helium tunnel without suffocating yes i think they held their breath but at one point the dad is literally like smiling and laughing again this is why i have a note i'm still not a hundred percent sure how their plan worked <laughs> no yeah the the tar pit thing was very weird i think that's all i had to say I think so too. Let me check. My only other comment is, so Mrs. Robinson, Mama Robinson finally tells Papa Robinson that she cheated to get Will on the ship. And it just made me think for, I should have thought this sooner, admittedly, but for the first time while watching this show, I thought, wait, if it was that easy for her to cheat to get someone on the ship, how many of these like recolonists or colonists or whatever are like legitimately who they were supposed to be and how many of them are just like rich people calling in favors well once again alpha centauri (laughs) not the mecca you think it is looks like it's just full of tools (laughs) i've said this before remember they decided they needed to have horses on alpha centauri because you know what we rich people we gotta play our polo Ryan, you did want to talk about the serial number on the 3D printed gun. Yes. Sure. So they they uh, they shoot the gun and then they're like, oh, let's look at this gun and see where it came from. And when they look at it really closely, there is a, a serial number that's kind of like embedded in it because it was 3D printed and the 3D printer includes this serial number on it. 
and uh, I haven't found any evidence that this is being done right now with 3D printers, although it's certainly possible. Um, but in the realm of 2D printers, this is kind of based on something that has already happened, which is uh, printing yellow micro dots onto every sheet of paper that you print with any sort of color printer. And uh, it was developed by Xerox in the 80s because they're like, hey, we're making, we're going to be making really good printers. What if people decide to like copy money with them? How are we going to make sure that that, you know, doesn't, um, that, that, that I think it's, it's maybe like a sense of like, how do we make sure people don't copy, copy money? And also how do we make sure the secret service doesn't like come after us all the time? So they, they invented this thing that actually embeds into every sheet of paper, both the serial number of the printer and also the time and date when it was printed and some other information. And so, you know, and, and this used to be widely available. Now it is thought that there's um, some patterns that are still exist, but we don't know exactly how they work with a different set of like miniaturized dots. So the idea that a 3D printer would be embedding some sort of code to identify what printer it came from and that sort of thing is not out of the question. In this case, it's a specific code. So if you were to look at the dots, you wouldn't be able to like read the serial number, which they do here. Um, and there's also additional information embedded in there, which I'm kind of surprised they didn't have in the 3D printer version. But you know what? Like, I'll take that kind of cool nod to a real life phenomenon in a uh, in a show that otherwise likes to take words from real life phenomena and then misuse them. <laughs> yeah. And we I feel like we did previously talk about 3D printed guns and this one had multiple shots and we don't really know how. But yep. We already yeah. know that 3D printers are, like, amazing and can print flexible leg braces, so. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing from this episode, there's a point in time when the Mama Robinson is like, oh, you have a concussion. And he says, I've had a lot of concussions. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't make it better. No, that makes, <laughs> that it makes it worse. Oh, yeah, when he was driving and she was like, maybe I should drive because your leg is still hurt. And also, you probably have a concussion. I'm like, why did you let him get in the driver's seat? Yeah, why? no, I didn't understand that. Also, either. why did you lead with his leg? Is Your leg is hurting. Like, <laughs> lead with the concussion. The leg's pretty small. Yeah, the dad, I know that he had, like, a brief touching moment with Will in the previous episode. But it continues to bother me that he's just, like, proto-male. Oh, I don't get hurt. And he, like, tries to finally, like, be vulnerable in this episode. So, like, maybe I should be nice to him. But he's better in episode eight. Oh, good. Listen, in the future, <laughs> in the future, we've invented interstellar spaceships, but we haven't eliminated toxic masculinity. <laughs> Unfortunately, believable. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Should we segue to Science Corner? Yeah. But Sounds first, good. we are a member of the Kaleidoscope Media Network. Uh, it is a group of podcasters who are banded together. Our sister podcasts are Here's Johnny, which talks about horror games and movies and just other aspects of filmmaking. They have really great interviews with people involved with horror movies and TV and things. Wizard Studies, which is a couple of ladies who are just extremely impressively knowledgeable about Harry Potter and they talk about all things Potter. Out of Contracts, which is a podcast in which two friends are watching all of Star Trek completely in a completely random order. They like put every episode into a randomizer and then they are watching them in that order. And I think they said it'll take them like seven or eight years to get through. So <laughs> uh, it'll be great. 
I mean, at their current rate, it'll be longer. <laughs> but especially because they're at, you know, right by the end, by the end of this year, there should be three concurrently operating. Oh man, Star Trek television shows. <laughs> nope. So they're kind of hosed. Yeah, they'll never so. be done. <laughs> Each of those shows only has like ten to twelve episodes. So only like a season yeah, I mean, and a half helps. of regular Star Trek. <laughs> you can check out all of them. You can go to our website. We have a page for our network. Yes. It's the one that says network on it. <laughs> oh, and we will put a promo-, promo for one of them here. Tales of giant monsters are as old as tales themselves. But what makes those stories fit into the kaiju genre and just how scary can they be? Larry and Justin are pursuing this very knowledge on the Here's Johnny podcast, a horror show that arrives every week, just like your favorite radio drama, but instantly through forbidden sciences known as Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. There are a ton of kaiju out there to learn about. Just listen to your local emergency officials and stay out of their paths. Wait, say that again? Uh, Sorry, folks, I'm getting a message from our staff. Uh, Folks, we're getting reports that a massive creature has just risen off the coast of this station and is heading this way. Please follow evacuation protocol and... Listen to the Here's Johnny podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. All right, welcome back to Science Corner. Yeah. So who wants to go first? I'll go first. Okay. Yeah, right. guest first. <laughs> nice. All right. So how do we know when people started drinking beer? That's a great question. <laughs> we don't, uh, I haven't looked at it exactly, but I did find out recently. We do have a way of telling when people malted grain. And when you malt grain, you essentially like let it start to break down and then you stop it from breaking down so there's all these nice like starchy chemicals in it that then you will feed to yeast and that'll turn into alcohol it'll become beer that sort of thing so and when you do that it it thins out like the the outer hull of the grain so if you if you do that and then like measure it with a microscope you can say like oh this is grain that has been malted and this is grain that has not been malted and this evidence persists over time and so you can actually look at this from like old pots there's a group from the uh, austrian academy of scientists the sorry austrian academy of science that has done this and compared malted barley from today to uh, samples from ancient brewery in in egypt um, and found that they looked very similar but interestingly they also ran the same process on some archaeological sites around lake constance in germany slash austria slash switzerland and they found that there is some similar evidence of that there. And it's not definitive proof that people in those ancient areas brewed beer specifically, because you can also use malt for making uh, malted milk balls, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing, um, giving it as a tonic or eaten as a snack. Uh, but, you know, considering what we know about the current cultures of uh, Germany, Switzerland, and Austria, it wouldn't exactly be surprising to find out that that was used for making beer additionally uh the quality of the water was probably not great and so by brewing it you actually do uh perform some light purification on it so the idea that the they were making beer from these ancient times is un- is not unlikely and this is goes back five thousand years ago uh these archaeological sites from that area so uh we might be looking at the uh, the origins of german beer nice Caitlin, do you do you have one? 
I do. It's not as like uplifting and lighthearted as that. So I don't know if you want me to go next. <laughs> yeah, you can go next because I have a more lighthearted one if you want to. Okay, we'll sandwich mine. Um, yeah. yeah, I just wanted to recommend this book. So we love science, obviously, on this podcast. And I think a lot of people like to talk about how science has been used positively in uh, history and today. But I do want to just like be aware that science hasn't always been used in a positive way and people have in the past and at present tried to use science to prove things that are not really reasonable and honestly in bad science they've used bad science um and what i wanted to recommend was a book superior the return of race science by angela saini I'm not sure if I'm saying that name correctly. I should have looked it up. So this is a book about all the various ways that people have attempted to use science and often bad science to suggest that different races are actually at some points different species of human or are just different in ways that are like makes one race more intelligent or more worthy of life than other races. And I wanted to shout this out because two previous guests on our podcast Deboki, who was on our episode about science in romance novels, scientific ladies in romance novels, and Sweeney, who was on our podcast about the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., have actually a like science book book club, and they talked about this book in that book club. So I can link to like a replay of the live stream of that book club. But I think that it is important when you're using science and when you are talking about science to acknowledge the ways in which science has not always been used well because otherwise like pretending science is only ever good can cause you to ignore real concerns that various communities have about it so that's my depressing science recommendation (laughs) yeah and I think I think to be clear what what you were saying is that this was all bad science good science shows that in fact People of different races are not inferior to whites. Yes, I would agree <laughs> that 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 should be very clear. <laughs> that should be very clear. There is no good science that shows this because that is a false thing. Good science, where they're trying to find the truth, does not find these shady things. Yes, exactly. So what you're saying, Kaylin, is that systemic racism exists. Yes, <laughs> and it exists in medicine. And we're trying to stamp it out of science as best we can. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Okay, so mine is much lighter than that. So last night I had a situation where a cockroach got into my apartment. And I'm not even kidding when I say that this little bugger was curious and like checking out my apartment. There are plenty of dark corners in my apartment and it decided to stay in none of them and would instead just crawl on things and look at me. (laughs) I swear I'm not making this up, although this did happen after midnight last night, so it is possible that my memories are shaded by exhaustion. Um, But anyways, I so after I finally, finally caught that stupid cockroach, I had known that cockroaches are one of the more intelligent bugs out there. But I felt the need to, like, justify. I swear I'm not making this up. This cockroach was, like, intelligent. Um, So I did some research on things about cockroaches. And yes, cockroaches are more intelligent than most insects. Um, I I read something that said, for example, cockroaches have about a million brain cells as opposed to a fly, which has a quarter of that. So cockroaches are, like, four times more intelligent than flies. 
Um, apparently, cockroaches like have the ability to like learn responses to stimuli. They can memorize maps back to uh, like different locations. And this one particular thing that I want to to point out is there was a study that found that cockroaches are really dumb in the morning but very smart at night, and so they have a circadian rhythm, and that their ability to learn depends on this rhythm. So these researchers found that in the morning, cockroaches could recall things that they had learned before, but they were unable to form new learning patterns. But at night, which is when cockroaches are active, they were able to learn new things, which is very interesting and very unusual for an insect. Like, because most insects don't have any sort of time association at all? Or are they all... It's like cockroaches are what we should be calling night owls. Yeah, because... well, I mean, cockroaches are night owls. Like, it's well known that cockroaches are active at night and they like, you know, for example, some insects like light spaces, but they like dark spaces. Um, but I, I guess it was just unusual to find that, that an insect's ability to learn is so dependent on its circadian rhythm. Like us, cockroaches, when they're real sleepy, have trouble learning things. <laughs> Yeah, so you don't have to worry about Sam, your new cockroach friend, spying on you during the day, just at night. Yes, that's why I didn't sleep well last night, because I was afraid there might be more cockroaches in my apartment. Now that it's day, I know that they're all asleep. I don't blame you, man. Roaches are the worst. It This one, like, here's the thing. I've dealt with roaches before, but I live in the South now, and roaches are just bigger here. Yes. Yeah, I'm. I don't really know what you're talking about. I've lived in the north part of the United States my entire life, so I don't really, you know, what's a cockroach? I will take winter <laughs> every year to not have to deal with cockroaches. They bugs just get bigger here in the south because it's winter awful. doesn't kill them all. And here's the thing: I don't think that I fully knew that cockroaches can fly. And regardless, I looked this up. Okay, this cockroach at one point was was on my wall above my couch, and like we were. We were in a detente because I did not want to get on the couch and then the cockroach was going to hop off the wall onto my couch. That was a bad situation. But also the cockroach knew that he couldn't come any closer down the wall because then I was there. So instead it just like perked up its little head. It was checking out my apartment and then it flew all the way across my apartment. And I looked this up and like one of the most common types of cockroaches in the US is the American cockroach. And they can fly, but usually they just glide from a high place to a low place. This just straight up flew all the way across my apartment. So I don't know if this was just an exceptionally talented cockroach. I would believe it. But I feel like the internet has lied to me, okay? <laughs> that was not a gliding cockroach. It was a flying cockroach. <sighs> Stupid cockroach. Anyways, it's it's gone now, hopefully. Yes. Hopefully. Nicole is nice, and she, like, live captured it and released it outside. Well, so here's the thing. Usually, I'm used to live capturing animals because I, when I find spiders, I pretty much always live capture them. Because yeah. I feel like spiders and I, we're on the same level. Like, spiders just want to be left alone and eat bugs. And I want to leave them alone and let them eat bugs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I really never kill spiders unless I absolutely can't help it. I always just release them outside. So that was part of it. But the other part of it is that this cockroach 
was like three inches long. And I did not want to have to squish a three foot long cockroach and then clean up its bug guts afterwards. So by the time I caught it, it was like 2.30 in the morning and I was so tired. (laughs) Okay, this is what I'm saying. Like this cockroach was smart. It was checking out my apartment. It was checking out me. It was it was in control of the situation. I had no control. And this is why Nicole had a cookie for breakfast. Yes, this is. I am very tired right now. And I just want to say that I am fairly certain. I am fairly certain this cockroach somehow stuck in on a piece of furniture that I usually keep on my balcony. But I brought it in because it was raining. And it, like when I saw it for the first time, it was still by the furniture. So presumably it would just been sleeping somewhere. And then was like, oh, nighttime. This is my time to shine. And then was like, what's this? Where am I? This is a cool new place. Look at that animal. I want to check out that new animal. Well, uh, feel free to send all of your cockroach stories to <sighs> at Nicole Luckless on Twitter yes. or to our podcast uh, Twitter, which is at TNHSW pod. Yeah. You can also find us on Instagram at TNHSW pod. Pod. Okay. <laughs> Uh, or at our website, that's not science.com. If you go to our website, you should definitely check out the blog post for this episode where we will have our articles and sometimes outtakes for the episode and we will post them there. Ryan, you can also find him on Twitter. Yeah, I'm Ryan Vanoss. Yeah, and you can find me at Caitlin Vanoss. Uh, and I believe that our next episode, we might just suck it up and finish. Lost in space. Yeah, well, again, episode eight was fine. I had, I really didn't have problems with episode eight, aside from Dr. Smith being like, mwahaha, twirly mustache card Gary villain. But I think it is relevant to say, since we're so close to the end of Lost in Space, we're probably going to suck it up and finish it off, that if you have had a thing that you've been meaning to pitch us and we haven't covered it yet, feel free to pitch it to us again. Oh, you can also email us. That's not how science works podcast at gmail.com. Yes. Um, additionally, you can get a sticker if you so desire Yay! by sending us an email or a DM with an address that we can mail a sticker to. Caitlin has international stamps. So if you live internationally, we can send stickers to you as well. You just have to make sure you format your address the way it should be written on an envelope. Yes. And um, as always, you should push this podcast on as many of your friends and family as you possibly can. Because uh, rating, reviewing us, that's fantastic. But apparently we do love we do love your reviews. Yes. Like, don't get us wrong. It makes me feel happy whenever someone reviews us. But also, it turns out that it has no effect on helping other people find us. So the best way to help other people find us is by word of mouth all right well uh thanks for listening and yeah thanks so much for listening thank you for coming on yes definitely talking about uh the advent of beer (laughs) and thank you for watching so much lost in space at this point because yes it's been kind of slow (laughs) (laughs) well i don't think he watched like the middle episodes Yeah, I'm a little confused because you're like, oh, this guy, I don't like him, or I like him. And I'm like, uh, I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> so. All right. Thanks so yeah, much for listening. Bye. Bye. Ooh, I can sing the theme song.
You made a piece of media. Really, you tried. But when I saw the signs and a little part of me died. <laughs>